Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be speaking to thought leaders and practitioners in and around product management, hoping to use our combined experience to inspire you to be a better product manager, product leader, or just make better products. If that sounds like that's something up your street, let's stay neighbours. You can pop over to onenightinproduct.com, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we talk about talking to people to make sure we make the best product decisions. We also go deep into tumultuous times through acquisition and divestment, company cultures colliding, the importance of being an open and honest leader through the storm, and how we might promote the next generation of product leaders to follow us. I also ask if my guest is the product management equivalent of George R. R. Martin, ponder a world of startup politics and intrigue, and I'm already starting to wonder if I'll get through the next sprint with my head on my shoulders. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Gif Constable. Gif's a product leader, consultant, adjunct business school professor and author of a book that's apparently standard reading at universities, or at least the one Gif lectures at anyway. Gif's a serial entrepreneur and has been product leader in a number of organizations, most recently CPO at Meetup, before moving on to live the dream in product consulting and education. Gif likes to write sci-fi, but took a step away from that to write Talking to Humans, a practical guide to qualitative customer development, and its sequel, Testing with Humans, about, well, testing with humans. Come to think of it, they both sound like they could be sci-fi books too. Hi Gif, how are you tonight? I'm well. Hi Jason. Good. So I have to ask, books on customer development are pretty on trend at the moment. There's quite a few new ones coming out. I've spoken to some of the authors myself and there's others coming. Seems to be new ones all the time. But Talking to Humans predates a lot of those. Goes back to about 2014, I think. Yep, that's right. So I have to ask, are these books just riding on your coattails a little bit? No, not, not in the least bit. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the, the advantage we all have is we're all trying to get better at the craft and we're all trying to share knowledge. And I think everything is additive. It's not about competition. It's, it's about helping each other. And what's, what's actually funny is that you just get these little pockets of knowledge. You, you'll have, and you'll see this in all sorts of uh, the product world, design world, engineering world. People get fixated around a certain thought leader or certain books. And, and there's all of a sudden there's this other, other whole echo chamber that sits alongside it with also very intelligent things. And they have no idea that each other exists. Uh, so no, I think the, the more the merrier. You know, I, I wrote my books because I was trying to think through all these things I was trying to do and learn. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I've had a blog for a long time. I tend to write to think. And so I did it out loud. Yeah, I think that's a common theme of a lot of authors, actually, this whole idea that the best way to frame your own thinking is just to write it down and see how stupid it looks and then try and make it better, right? So yeah, I think I can understand where that comes from. It's almost like the lean startup in writing form. But the book talks about the importance of customer research, yeah. techniques you can use, ways that you can find participants, and a load more besides that. And obviously, people are still people at the end of the day. So a lot of their personalities and the cognitive biases you can lean on and all that stuff, they're all the same. But you touched on it yourself, like thinking advances, right? So are there any techniques that you have developed yourself since or picked up since that maybe you would have put in the book if you'd have thought about them sooner? I need to do a second edition of it. There you go. I've learned a lot since then. Back when I wrote that book, I was really in startup land. And a lot of my time since has been more in product leadership land. And there's overlaps, but there are differences as well. 
The, the number one thing that I really have learned to stress to people when I have tried demoing this, teaching this, you know, mentoring on this topic is deep active listening and follow on questions. It's actually that latter that makes all the difference. You might go in to an interview with five questions. You don't actually want it to be too many, but you really want to probably ask about 30 to 50 because you got to go down those rabbit holes. You're trying to, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this? It's, you know, it's like the five whys that we've all heard of, but yep. you have to do it a little more naturally than that. It can't be too obnoxious, but you got, it's, it's all about, it's all about the follow on questions. And if you can open yourself up to being focused on what's the next thing you want to learn? What's the follow-on question to go deeper and deeper and deeper? That's where the interesting material lies. Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, actually had to stop myself saying why halfway through your question there just to, you know, kind of low-level troll you. But <laughs> it's, uh, I think some of these techniques are not necessarily natural to people as well, right? Because oh, yeah, totally. like people just want to sit there. They have a list of five questions, like you say, 10 questions. They just want to read them out and go because they have, in many ways, either no real way to think on their feet, I guess, or also they maybe just want to reinforce the biases that they went in with as well. So it's really tricky to get people to do that. And obviously something I have to cater for on this podcast as well is like trying to mix up the pre-planned stuff and stuff that's reacting to things that you're saying, like we're doing right now, which is why it's slightly less evident. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was a really early adopter of Lean Startup, I guess maybe even before the book, when Eric had... Oh, so he's writing on your coattails as well. No, not at all, not at all. <laughs> but you know, Steve Blank wrote Four Steps to the Epiphany, and Eric had started his blog. And I went, I was doing, I had founded a startup at the time. I had just come off of four years of a startup that had two amazing high growth years and then a bit of a decline. And I came out of that going, how do I do this better? How can I do this better? And I discovered Four Steps to the Epiphany, which had brilliant ideas. It's an almost incomprehensible book <laughs> by Steve Blank, but the <laughs> ideas in it are fantastic. But Eric was taking those ideas and really making them palatable, understandable from a lot of people. But whether you're talking about the customer discovery angle of it or just anything that's tied to lean startup, it all, it all fights against our cognitive biases. It, it fights yeah. against the way we want the world to work. And so, the, but that's where these little frameworks or these bits of structure can help because they create this scaffolding that allows you to overcome your own mental weaknesses. And I'm as guilty of, of that as anyone else. I've just had a lot of practice and stuff. <laughs> so it's not the age, it's the mileage. <laughs> well, so yes. Or the, or the stubbornness. <laughs> or the stubbornness. But a couple of years back, you brought out Testing with Humans, which is the yep. sequel. And that's about testing, but, uh, but mainly about testing the hypotheses based off of what happened when you talk to them, I guess. So you come back with some ideas, you want to make sure that they're actually good ideas and invalidate your hypotheses as much as possible. Yep. Now, they're both short books, which is obviously good for quick digestion. And also, as the author, I'd guess you'd definitely advise reading both because you know, you're the author. But at the same time, do you have to kind of read them in order and or do you advise reading both in their totality? Or do you think it's something that you can, or that they're both something that you can dip in and out of when you have specific questions to answer? You know, both those books are meant to be, I'm a practitioner. I don't think of myself as an academic. I think of myself as a practitioner. And those books were me, again, trying to lay out some of the things that I was practicing and learning. I was lucky enough to be CEO of a company called Neo that now is, got bought by uh, Pivotal a few years back. And I was working 
with some folks that you might have heard of, David Bland, Josh Seiden, Jeff Gothel. These guys have yep. gotten pretty well, you know, Sam McAfee, pretty well known. We were, we were at Collis, an innovation consulting company, and we were running countless experiments. We were running experiments on how to run experiments. And what I learned in having so many at-bats and watching these colleagues of mine, who are all very bright, have so many at-bats, is that the greatest insights that, that, that I was getting and seeing my colleagues get tended to come from the qualitative research. But the best sense of truth, of believability, of what people will do comes from the experiments. Just because an experiment is you're putting people through some sort of experience and you're seeing their actual behavior. So you want to do both. They're two sides of the same coin. It's just asking this question, how can I tell if something's a good idea? Or how can I increase the odds of telling that something or figuring out that something's a good idea before it's actually real, before I've invested a lot? It's a really important question. Frankly, I've spent my entire life trying to answer this question that I you know, still haven't, but I'm chipping away at it. And the qualitative research, the customer interviews, the ethnographic stuff, that's one side, but the experiments are equally important. And frankly, if you're missing one, you're really missing out. You know, equally important is quantitative, is the data side of things. So I don't care whether you read my books or whether you read someone else's books. It's just, I just want people to do this stuff. And everyone is bad at both qualitative research and experiments when they start. I haven't seen any exceptions to that. I am no exception to that. <laughs> my first experiments were like nine months long. You know, and then they got to be three months and then they got to be three weeks and you finally get down to, you know, sometimes you can get them down to three days. But everyone sucks at it at the beginning. So if there's something, whether it's David Bland's book on experiments or, or mine or, or Teresa or Melissa Perry, I don't care. But if someone can help you get a little scaffolding and make it easier to try this stuff out and maybe skip over some of the dumb mistakes we all made, then, then great. Absolutely. But you touched on it yourself a little bit. You know, you're a practitioner. You want to do this stuff for real, not just, yep. not just for play. Yep. But you have also said that these books have kind of found a bit of a niche in education and like say universities and you're, I guess you're setting these books yourself, but sounds like they're being set in other universities around the world as well. Is there something in these books that you think has made them particularly palatable to educators and to people that are teaching this stuff around the world? Or do you think that just happened? Uh, cartoons. <laughs> I'm only half joking, actually. So the first book uh, I wrote, but I had a collaborator. You know, I, I wrote most of the book, but Frank Romolowski, who runs the Entrepreneurship Center at NYU, this is long before I was really involved with NYU. I only just started teaching at NYU a few months ago. So they were already using my book for years before they pulled me in. Frank reached out to the whole reason why actually the book happened was because of Frank. I had way back in, I think, 2010 at some startup accelerator, like these startup weekend kind of things, these startup accelerators, I had been asked to come give some talks yeah. because I'd written some blog posts about what I was doing in my own startup. But, you know, I just, as I say, I, I think out loud. And so they asked me to come give some talks and I had uh, a blog post with this like 10 tips and that went very viral for, for a little while. And so, several years later, Frank came to me and said, hey, we're still using the blog post and Steve Blank has created some videos. Steve was kind enough to write actually the foreword to the book. It was great, but, yeah. but it's still not enough. People are still screwing up on this. They're still confused by this. We need more. Like, Would you write something more? And that's, that's actually why the book was written. I think the other, just to be totally honest, I think one of the nice things that happened there is 
because my collaborator, for lack of a better phrase, was very involved in the I-Core system and the university entrepreneurship system, he was talking to the person teaching entrepreneurship at MIT and at Berkeley and Harvard and Penn and all these other places. And so when we came out with the book, he said, hey, you all should check this out. Now, the book <laughs> is short yeah. and it's, it's very tactical. It's very concise. And it doesn't overwhelm you with information. Now, there's tons that I've learned that I actually wish was in the book. But in some ways, I wonder whether, you know, you know how sometimes too much information is actually worse than no information at all. Like you can overwhelm somebody and, and then they're not absorbing anything. Yeah. And it seemed like the book hit a nice middle ground of, of just enough to get someone going without overwhelming them. And, uh, and having some cartoons to lighten it up uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't hurt it at all. And so it, it started at a lot of the, the U.S. university systems and then it went international. So it's in, you know, you go around the world to, it used to just be entrepreneurship classes, but actually it's increasingly showing up in some product classes too, which is fun to see. It used to be the product people didn't, had no idea that I'd ever <laughs> written these books. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. Well, it's a little bit here nor there, I guess. Yeah. It's always nice to be appreciated, right? But now you touched on it a little bit earlier on around how you started out in startups. I think you're working in startups when you wrote that book and then you moved into bigger companies. Yeah. One of those bigger companies was Meetup, which was your last full-time gig yep. where you were CPO for a while. And that was in this kind of, I presume, fairly purple period between being bought by WeWork and before they sold it at a massive loss. So probably the best time to be there. <laughs> it was a very tumultuous time to be there, let's be honest. I was going to say, was it exciting? I mean, I guess tumultuous can be exciting, right? Was it an exciting time to be there and kind of riding that wave and all the positivity around Meetup at the time and all the hype around WeWork? Or did that just make it massively stressful? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, when WeWork bought Meetup, there was some, I think, some theoretical ideas as to what the synergies were going to be between the two companies. As often happens, with mergers, and I don't think I'm talking out of school or saying anything particularly controversial to say this, they often don't appear. Yeah. Or they often become more complicated than one hopes. And that started to happen. But what was very true about WeWork was it was a go big or go home kind of place. Grow, 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 get growing and get growing more. And we don't care how much money you spend to get growing, but just get growing. And Scott, who founded Meetup, was very mission-oriented. He, he ran the business quite prudently. It became, you know, it's got people, you know, 13 million people every month using this and 180 countries. It's, you know, it's, it's an ever-present product that's out there. But Scott ran it very sustainably. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Wonderful team, wonderful, bright, mission-oriented people inside the company. I've never worked for a company with more diversity in terms of the employee base, more empathy inside the employee. I learned so much, frankly, just about empathy working in that company with those colleagues. It was, it was a wonderful experience for me. So that was, that was great. What was tricky about it was that the growth path of, of Meetup was not what we were wanted to see and trying to, in some ways, force a new level of growth on this established company was the key name of the game. Now, I'd done this a few times. Uh, you know, the, the answer had to be, as I saw it, had to be in changing up the business model, changing up the revenue model, maybe not for everybody, but certainly for some. And 
that actually led to there's a there's a story there that some people have heard, but there's a story you know that led to a rather huge PR fiasco for a little while when a small experiment. Speaking of experiments, this tiny experiment we were running in Delaware with just a handful of people, people thought that was a major policy change, and it went viral, and people got really upset. <laughs> and that was our fault for not doing a better job, honestly, of communicating what we were doing and why, even for a small experiment. But yeah, so we got, you know, we got our hands slapped a little bit, but we, we had some very hard work to do. We were really between a rock and a hard place with we were putting a lot of pressure on the business to grow very rapidly. And actually, I think, you know, I'll be honest that when the WeWork IPO melted down, that was, I've been through some crazy times because <laughs> I've spent my life in a lot of startups and you go through crazy times in a lot of startups. So I'm, no stranger to intensity and restructuring and layoffs and, and, uh, and sometimes crazy growth spurts and all that stuff. But I will say that that period where uh, WeWork was kind of melting down around our ears and we realized, okay, it was very likely that we were going to get spun out and to a very different class of owner with very different priorities from WeWork, that was a crazy time. That was a very intense, crazy time. But I honestly think that it's glad to see. It seems like I haven't paid huge amounts of attention. It seems like WeWork has kind of stabilized a little bit. Yeah. And I think that Meetup, it's great that Meetup is private again. It's the best thing for it. It absolutely is the best thing for it and for its customers as well. But what, I mean, you've just described a fairly frenetic. Yes, that's a good word. <laughs> life. And that's not for everyone, right? But at the same time, I guess it's high risk, high reward or not reward in this case. But ultimately, that's the deal that you make when you're going into some of these high growth startups, right? But as a leader of the product organization in that company, what are some of the ways you can cope with that? Because a lot of people might struggle with that because of the fast pace and the pressure and the no doubt blame and stuff that's thrown around. You know, it, There's got to be ways that you need to draw strength from or there's got to be things that you can do to help you get past some of the bad times. Were there any particular techniques that you felt were really helpful to kind of keep you on track? That's a really good question, Jason. I, I think I learned at, at Meetup better probably than ever before that one can, as a leader, one can be and should be more transparent and authentic than I, than I thought when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And it has to be done in the right way. It can be done really in the wrong way. You could be overly transparent. You could be selfish, and I, the word's not coming to me, uh, and about yourself in your authenticity, right? Yeah. But you can also be vulnerable and honest and transparent about what's going on. That meetup arc for me was very interesting because at the beginning, it was a bit of a transformation story. At the beginning, the engineering and design and product had not been getting along. Yeah. There was a lot that was very broken about how product and engineering was done at meetup and not because there weren't great people and kind people and talented people, but there were some some incentives and some leadership issues and, and some things that had led to a fairly broken process. So at the beginning, it was about understanding where the culprits of that were and healing that. And, you know, like there hadn't been a when I got there, there was no roadmap. There was no product strategy. It, it didn't exist. They were working very hard on some things. So getting people on board with that, helping people understand. Like the product management team, when I first came in, you know, I, I, I've had a tendency, a, a mistaken tendency at times to come in a little strong. <laughs> and, and I think I did at the beginning of Meetup too. And if any of my old 
product managers working for me back then hear this, they will probably <laughs> raise their eyebrows and, and, and maybe laugh. But but at the beginning, I was like, oh, God, this is bad. <laughs> and I said that because I could tell that they all knew it was bad. I could see that they were all in pain. They were all going, God, why are we working this way? This is not how we're supposed to work. Like, you know, they, they read the blog posts and listen to the experts and like everyone else are like, that's how you're supposed to work. Why aren't we working that way? And it's not even like, you know, the company was some giant old school company. This is, this is a, I mean, an older internet company, but so there was a lot of pain. And I think I called out that things were bad, maybe a little too bluntly at the beginning. And I needed to be a little bit more honest about what I was trying to do. And that I believed in the team and I believed in the talent and, uh, and things like that. Once I realized that actually it was the CEO who pulled me aside and say, Hey, like, like people are getting really pissed <laughs> off. Not in design and engineering. They're loving you, but the, product managers who, you know, there were, there had been this little dynamic going on where the product managers felt blamed for everything. Yep. Yeah. That never happens though, right? Anymore. Hold on a second. All right, I'm going to pause this story. Either pause the story. I want to, that was a deep yep. So I want to come back and hear what's behind that yep. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, not just, I mean, yes for myself, but also just people that I talk to all the time. You know, I speak yeah. to a lot of people out in the community these days. I'm not going to pick on anyone in particular, including myself, but I think there are so many stories of kind of, I mean, it's the old cliche, like product managers that aren't empowered, product managers that are really project managers that are just having stone tablets brought down from up on high and told to just implement some things and they have to be implemented by this date and they've got to be very specific with their timelines and everything's got to be done perfectly and everything like that. And of course, we all want to do things well and we all want to do stuff roughly on time if we have to have a time, but at the same time, a dynamic that I've seen personally and have heard a lot out there in the community is this whole idea that the engineers are blaming the product team because they didn't get good requirements or something. <laughs> the commercial part of the company, the sales organization are blaming the product managers because they're not getting the features that they need. The CS team are blaming the product management team because they're not getting the bugs fixed that they want to get fixed. The leadership are blaming the product management team because they're not getting the business results that they expected. And whilst obviously the product management team does have a massive role to play in that, it tends to be, in my experience at least, kind of like what you said, like just this, just dysfunction across the board, right? It's not that one team is massively underperforming and everyone else is fine. And if we only had a better product management team, it would be fine. It's like, no, there's, there are deep systemic issues in the companies and that then causes some of the side effects, which we've both kind of just mentioned, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they always say success has many parents and failure has few. <laughs> and to some extent, you sign up for that, though, right? You sign up to be kind of in the middle and kind of blamed if it comes to it, because that's part of the deal, right? You are in the middle and you are an easy target because everyone's interacting with you. But at the same time, I don't really think it's fair to sit there. I mean, no one says life's got to be fair, I guess, but it's not really fair for that to be the case. I'll take that trade personally. I would rather have the influence over yeah. the product strategy and the roadmap and take the blame if it doesn't work yeah, yeah, sure. and be accountable for it than not because that's, that's the work that's really amazing and fun to do. It's when you have the blame and not the influence is the yeah, problem. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. That's, <laughs> and that's, that's an unfair position to be in. And to a certain extent, I think some of the, the PMs that were now working for me when I first got there had been suffering from that a little bit, you know? Yeah. And so I had to be empathetic about where they were coming from and what they had had experienced and, and also explain why I was pushing for the things that I was pushing for. 
the, the why is, the, is such a key thing here. Oftentimes, where product falls down is product doesn't do a good enough job of explaining to the rest of the company why. Why are yeah, things yeah, happening? Yeah. Why is it not working? Why is it going slower? Well, like, you know, your colleagues are only semi-interested in, it, in that <laughs> because they've got their own crap that they're dealing with. That's why, you know, yeah. as a leader, you end up sort of bemoaning the fact that you have to repeat yourself so often. But that's natural because everyone's dealing with their own crap. And so, your, you know, your fire drill is not their fire drill. So, they're going to forget about yours. But explaining the why is key. And, and back to your original question, when you're going through really hard times or all of a sudden, it seems like leadership is painting a target that everyone thinks is irrational. Yeah. Why are we trying to grow revenue like that? Like, that's, <laughs> that's not, you know, and so often that can happen is people just not, okay, you're giving us this target, but it, it seems really stupid. It only seems stupid because people aren't being honest about why, yeah. about what's really going on. And so, one of the things that I do try to do is treat everyone like an adult and trust people to be able to handle some of the hard truths and some of the hard compromises yeah. that have to be made when you're going through the shit, you know? And so, we had certain things that we had to do because we were wholly owned by WeWork. Yeah. And that puts certain constraints on us that not everyone was going to agree with. And not everyone who has less business experience is going to understand that. Yeah. And they're not in the rooms where that, uh, the executive rooms where that's being discussed. I've had similar things where you're trying to figure out, you know, like the CEOs under pressure from the VCs on the board and you're going, what the devil are we doing? But if you want to get smart people motivated as opposed to cynical, then you've got to leak. You got to give, not a leak, you got to um, <laughs> like crack open the window and help people understand why. And that's part of the authenticity that I mean is like when you're going through hard times, it's okay to say, we're going through hard times. Uh, another example of this is not long after I got there, the VP, so I, I had, I had designed at the beginning, I had design and, and product management reporting to me, which I don't remember it was maybe like 25, 30 people. And then eventually my CTO counterpart, who I adored, left. And all of a sudden I had engineering as well. Uh, damn it. Yeah. That was, I was an unhappy day. Uh, but <laughs> so I had a VP of product. I had promoted her to be VP when I got there. But unbeknownst to me, she had already decided to leave. And so, I don't know, like six weeks after I started, she told me that she was heading off to another company. And there was no way that, because we had, you know, 10 product managers, so I could have all of them reporting to me and all the design stuff. And there was huge amounts of strategy work. I was, I was in the middle of like totally creating a roadmap that didn't exist and all this stuff. And so I had to just say to the product managers, this is going to suck for a little while. It's going to suck <laughs> for you and it's going to suck for me. And I'm going to do my best not to let you down, but I cannot be a perfect manager. And so here's what I need from you. Here's how you could help me. Here's where you should call me to account if I'm not doing X. And here's where it's probably, and it's like, talk about this stuff. You know, it's not going to be perfect. So let's just be honest about it. Let's all be grownups and, and help each other. And that can help a team get through some really hard times if you do that. And I'm always surprised at how many leaders are afraid to do that, actually. Yeah, I think it's a tricky balance because I've certainly worked with leaders in the past who have been sitting there and very much sort of worn their heart on their sleeves and you could almost see them having a, yeah. a low-level breakdown at times because yes. they're so stressed with what's going on. And, you know, frankly, I think one big lie that 
maybe some people tell themselves is that as you get more senior, that you don't worry about things anymore. When obviously it's not that at all. It's that you're just worrying about different things or like a different Zoom level or whatever. But I think that to be honest, when you're like a senior leader in any organization, you need to have some level of pretense. Yep. Yeah, but not pretending yeah. because you want to be evil or anything like that, but like, no, you can't let it all rain down. That's right. I kind of call it air cover. You know, you want to provide some level of air cover yeah. so that your team have enough information, as you say, to, and you know, to motivate them and to get them pointing in the right direction, but not so much that they all decide to leave probably at the same time that the leader leaves as well, because the leader's yeah. so stressed out as well. So it's a really tricky balance. And it sounds really disingenuous to say that you should pretend a bit but i do think it's important to find the level that you're prepared to sort of filter stuff through and then show the team the rest because yeah no i say it is really tricky you can't lose your optimism no and you have to you can be vulnerable but it has to be within strength as well there's a great quote that i love that encapsulated my thinking about leadership better than i ever had (laughs) there's this book called unleashed by i think ann morris and francis frey and I heard them get interviewed on this, this podcast I like called Culture Lab. And the, I think the quote is, leadership is about making others better first in your presence and then in your absence. And I, bingo, that, that's it. <laughs> and the thing is, is, is you don't need a title to do that. You don't need to manage people to do that. You just start lifting people around you. And you can't do that in your presence or in your absence if you're behaving in a way that drags everyone down. Yeah. If all of a sudden you're freaking out and now everyone else is freaking out, right? Yeah. So you've got to figure out, okay, like, yes, we could acknowledge that this is a very freak outable situation, (laughs) (laughs) but we're not going to freak out and we are going to handle it. And here's the the best way we're going to handle it. And it's not going to be perfect, but we're going to put our best foot forward. You know, it's like, it's just... You've got to carry people through these crazy times, especially the folks with less years of experience than you and I who haven't seen it, who haven't been through it. Yeah, exactly. And it feels like the walls are really coming down. And sometimes they do come down, but sometimes it's more dramatic than it actually will be. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Everything feels like a disaster when you start out. I mean, I remember being sort of in my early 20s and every single time I got any criticism or anyone raised their voice in a meeting or there was any kind of rumor about anything, that was it. That was that was me done for the week, you know. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I think this is one of the reasons I'm really passionate about mentoring is because it allows people of our generation to kind of bring up the next generation, which makes me sound really old. But that's the whole point, right? It's like you're using your experience and the fact that things like this do happen. Did you feel that it was important then within that team to promote for example, one of the existing product managers into a more senior leadership role, or did you have to hire externally? Because it's quite a tricky path from PM to product leader. It is. I did both, actually. I promoted one person, and I did an external hire as well. And it's true. It is, it's a different set of muscles and a different mentality moving from product manager to product leader. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's this kind of Peter Principle thing going on potentially as well. <laughs> yes. like, I mean, yeah. it's, it's easy to say it's a bit of a cliche, but at the same time, it's true that the strongest individual contributor from the product team potentially gets lined up to be the, mm-hmm. the next product director or head of product or VP of product even, depending on what the company's needs are. Yep. But it's also very common for these people to just kind of get thrown into it. Mm-hmm. Like They don't get any support. They don't get any coaching. They don't get any mentorship. 
there's probably no real structure around how they actually even got there. It just this happened to you, right? Is that did I remember that correctly? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean my path into leadership. Yeah, it wasn't unsupported, but uh, yeah, I had to kind of work a lot out as I went along. Yeah, and of course the thing, the thing is, it's almost like a perfect trail off into the distance of all the other people that are ahead of you that also probably didn't get any mentorship or coaching or leadership training and they've worked it as they've gone along as well right so yep. you're in a situation where no one's really in a position where they've actually been taught how to do this stuff for want of a better word properly now i was lucky enough later in my career to get some good quality leadership coaching i found it really helpful i've read a lot of books as well which is obviously also really helpful but i mean it are there any other ways that you've used whilst you've been bringing people up to try and bridge that gap between senior individual contributor to product leader in waiting or product leader in actuality? Like any ways that you've tried to help drive them into that? There's a few ingredients. You have to paint the path of where the gaps are and, and what is needed. You know, as you're as you're moving up, you have to expand your strategic skills, you have to expand your people management skills, you have to, have to, uh, I beat this drum to death, but you have to become very fluent in finance and the language of business. Finance is the common language at the executive suite and at the board suite. And so, the kind of shorthand language that's super fun, it's probably my favorite language that we have <laughs> between designers, PMs, and engineers is not how you're going to talk with your head of sales and your your CMO and your you know CFO or a board member and things like that. So you've got to get learn those skills. You've got to really pick up the importance of business models, understanding things around how businesses are valued and how that actually is really important for the product choices you make. So there is this whole world that when you're just a call it a I don't mean this in a denigrating way, but when you're a line PM, when you're you're an IC working on a, a team, you know, you might have an outcome you're shooting for, you might have a feature, but there's, there's a lot that you're focused on and you're here and now trying to execute that really well, trying to get your team to execute that really well, that you can, if you're aware of those things, you could start to stretch them. All the things that I just mentioned, you could do at a team level on a team scale and start practicing and getting feedback. And then as you sort of work your way up, you really start thinking of your, your product becomes the entire company. Yeah, exactly. You're almost, a CPO is almost like a COO in a lot of different ways, especially at a, a very product-centric company because everything is revolving around us. It. it is, yeah. you're designing the engine of the entire thing, not just about how your customers are working with your product, but how actually the whole company works effectively to deliver value to your customers and then reap value itself. So you got to paint that picture. And then you got to get, you have to create opportunities for people to stretch and give them enough rope to, to hang themselves, but not so much <laughs> that they're not getting supported. But there's often, you know, you spot people who can take, there's some people that can just take a lot of weight. They, they can take a lot of pressure. They can take a lot of weight and they love learning curves. And you, 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 you push people as far as you think they can handle and you make sure you stay in communication so you're not pushing too much and you're throwing someone over the deep end. And I, you know, I haven't done that perfectly. I've gotten that wrong sometimes. <laughs> but that's, you know, I, uh, I guess a rambly answer of, of, of what I'm trying to do. Paint the picture and then create the opportunities uh, for them to do so and, and continue to stretch them. I mean, that's all pretty g generic answer. I apologize. I mean, it sounds generic, but I think it's, it's a really valuable framing of the journey that leaders have to go on, right? And I think also with regards to leaders, 
or even team leaders, like if you're not operating at the executive level, there's always a kind of be careful what you wish for type mm-hmm. yes, caveat as well, is. right? Because actually, I think a lot of people just want to manage people because they think it's the next step up. But it might not be. And it might not yeah. actually align with anything that they actually want to do. And that's why I like seeing some of the commentary you get on social media now around kind of dual track careers as well. Like there should be an, an IC yes. path that you can just get bigger, you know, bigger and better at and deliver value to your company without having to do things that you might not be very good at or you might not be very passionate about or that you might have no interest in at all. So I think those two tracks can be really valuable. It'd be interesting to see if that actually takes hold. I hope it does. I mean, I'm very optimistic about that because if you are at a company that has big, hard, gnarly opportunities, who do you want to hand that to? You want to hand that to someone who is senior experienced and can kick ass, right? Mm -hmm. And so, to take some of your strongest, most passionate, hands-on practitioners and say, now you have to do everything through other people. Yeah. It's a real loss. Now, you have to have those opportunities to make use of someone that senior because they're going to become expensive. So, it's got to make sense economically. But I am really excited because most tech companies do have those opportunities. So, don't force everyone down the management path. If someone really loves being hands-on and just solving really hard problems with a smaller team, let them do that. Yeah. Right? And other people actually love the management side. They love actually starting to make progress through other people. Um, that comes with its own challenges, as you know. Absolutely. But yeah, that divergence, I, I'm, I'm, I, really, I, I am quite optimistic that that will take hold slowly. It's going to take hold slowly because it's expensive, but it will take hold. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Now, you're writing a new book at the moment, I believe, called First Principles Product Management. That's slow going. Okay. That's because the way I write books is, is I, as I say, I was mortally offended when you introduced me as an academic and a consultant. <laughs> Even though it's true, I had to step away from full-time work for family reasons. And that's what I'm doing right now is I'm teaching and uh, and doing some consulting here or there. But I much prefer, honestly, I'm much happier when I'm in-house rather than consulting. But I do my best writing when I'm in the thick of it. And I'm doing the hard stuff and watching and learning from my colleagues who are doing the hard stuff. I had the premise for this book when I came out of Meetup because my biggest task, what I learned not just at Meetup, but before what I learned is one of my biggest challenges and tasks as a leader was to figure out how to get really good judgment down into the ranks, down into the teams. If you can do that, then you can trust your teams, you can let go, you can have the kind of autonomous teams that everyone wants. And then your other executives who are freaking out of like, we can't trust the teams. You could be like, yes, we can. (laughs) Like, we're going to do this. We're going to let go and we're going to do this. But to do that, you have to get good judgment down there. So how do you do that? I had this notion that any product manager can come up with good answers if they ask the right questions, if they just ask the right questions. And so... I started writing this. I started sort of accumulating these questions that I've asked and that I saw the great PMs who worked for me ask. And it, to be honest, it kind of stalled out because I haven't been in the trenches. And I'm not an academic kind of writer where, I, where I'm like a journalist who goes and interviews, you know, a thousand people and then writes a book. It's, it's, that's not how, that's not how my, my books uh, take form. So that has, that's been on pause. And I'll probably actually end up doing the, the second edition of Talking to Humans before 
first prince, but I'm still very intrigued by this idea. I still think whether someone else, maybe Shreyas should do this. Shreyas, if you're listening to this, go do this because you'll do this better than I will. He will. He's such a clever guy. But yes, it's like, what are the really hard questions? The non-generic, the non-banal, the hard questions that are easy to forget and that you need to be reminded of in the moment. And that's always where I've gotten myself into trouble. And that's actually why sometimes reading, you know, all, all business books are sort of generic, but reading them can be useful because they remind you of the things that you already knew, but you forgot or <laughs> slipped your mind because you're so busy with everything else. So basically, we shouldn't hold our breath for that book, but it might come yeah, out one day. Don't hold your breath for that book. <laughs> no, not in, not in months, that's for sure. <laughs> I was going to ask about the chance of a product management sci-fi crossover novel as well, but I'm sure that's going to be even further out. Like, <laughs> you're becoming a George R.R. R. Martin of product management books, right? That's exactly right. Uh, God forbid. That would be terrifying. <laughs> that's, that's all about politics and territory. That's, that's not where you want to spend your time. Well, although there is quite a lot of that in product management, so I'm assuming that that would actually be a fairly gripping novel. I guess, yes, stakeholder management. Uh, winter is coming. There you go. So where can people find you after this if they want to chat to you about anything regarding product management, product leadership, try and get some more little anecdotes about Meetup or anything else they fancy chatting to you about? I'm on Twitter. At Gifco, G-I-F-F-C-O. My blog is, you know, gifconstable.com. You could probably DM me on LinkedIn. I, I'm, you know, I kind of like, you know, both Twitter and LinkedIn, I kind of uh, dip in and out of because, you know, you can't, you can't keep up with the stream. Twitter is probably the best place, to be honest. If someone wants to just at me, I try to be responsive. And I do try to, like you, I believe in mentoring. Yeah. And uh, I've got this wonderful little thing right now that I'm doing called Case Camp, where I've got a group of very senior product leaders and a group of sort of up and coming kind of senior PM director level who want to get to the VP level. And we role play every week, we role play like difficult situations. And, uh, and that's been really fun. So I love talking about this stuff. I love geeking out about this stuff. People should definitely reach out. Well, I'll put it in the show notes and hopefully they will. That's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you taking the time and uh, sharing some of your thoughts and opinions and war stories. Hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. I always enjoy listening to this and thanks for having me on. It's a privilege. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>